Our God in heaven, we're so thankful for this day and so thankful for uh, the beautiful morning that you've given us. We're thankful to be able to be here uh, assembled with the people that we love and who love us. And we're thankful, Father, for the opportunity to be able to sit down at this time in the quietness of this hour and study your word, to open it up. And we pray, God, that you would open our eyes as we study, that you may be, uh, we may behold wonderful things from your law. We're thankful, Father, so much for the church that meets here, for the elders, for the deacons, for all the teachers and uh, all those who labor so tirelessly. Uh, to see that the cause of Christ moves forward here in this place. God, give us strength and wisdom and understanding and boldness to speak your word with uh, truth and sincerity, but also, Father, tempered always with love and with uh, humility and meekness, that uh, once again, Father, we may not give others a cause or occasion for stumbling, but they may uh, truly see your word and uh, make a choice based upon that. We're thankful most of all for Jesus Christ and for his sacrifice on the cross. We pray to God that we can live every day with the cross before our eyes, striving to be like him in sacrifice and striving to be him like him in humility. And God, may it be that wherever people that, uh, as Jude would say, would contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just a little bit of background information about uh, Jude before we jump into our um, study and reading of it. Uh, Jude begins this epistle uh, to an unknown area, and Jude uh, doesn't have a um, set audience. Just uh, chapter one, verse one, or one verse, sorry, one verse one, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Jude falls within uh, the group of New Testament books that we call the general epistles. That is, uh, it's not a specific writer writing to a specific audience for a specific purpose, but Generally, overall, this is something that applies to all the saints and something that's uh, not located in one geographic area. And as you're uh, looking at this, well, I don't know, have you ever gone somewhere, had a day that you thought, or maybe an occasion or an appointment that you thought would go one way and then it goes completely different? Uh, surely nobody's had days like that, except for me. Uh, but you understand that maybe, I don't know, you go... Um, and you're wanting to go and sit down with a group of people or sit down with a couple or something like that and just uh, wanting to spend some time encouraging and uh, laughing and, and having some time together. And then all of a sudden you find out that there's some serious problems that are going on in their life that need to be addressed. And so you thought that the evening would go one way, but it goes completely different. In that sense, in that mindset, that's kind of the way that Jude begins this epistle. And that's kind of the way Jude writes this epistle. Note what he says there in verse 3 as, uh, as he introduces what he's going to talk about. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, this is what I wanted to say to you. I wanted to write about how great it is to be in Christ and how wonderful the sacrifice is and how wonderful the bond of Christian fellowship is. That's what I wanted to write about. However, he says, verse 3, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Why did you feel that compelled to write that, Jude? Why, instead of talking about the greatness of salvation, the greatness of the relationship we have in Christ, why not talk about fellowship like John did in 2 John and 3 John and certainly 1 John? He says, because, verse 4, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only God in our Lord Jesus Christ. As much as Jude wanted to write about the common salvation, about the greatness of Christ, he says, I'm going to have to write to you about this, about contending earnestly for the faith, 
because there's people that have come in and crept in unnoticed and that are not the people that they ought to be. And they're people that you, in fact, as he goes on in the letter, says that you ought to watch out for. Note how different that is than what we've already talked about in 2 John and 3 John. In 2 John, he talks about people that are coming into the assembly, people that are coming into the church. Again, if we're talking about uh, 2 John being, um, uh, well, kind of a cryptogram for uh, being written to a church, the elect lady, he says. If uh, there's people that come in and say, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a member of the church down the road. And by the way, did you know Jesus Christ is not divine? By the way, did you notice that Jesus Christ is not fully human? John says in 2 John, don't have any fellowship with that person. You don't greet them. You don't receive them into your house because we don't want to share in their evil deeds. You send them on their way and you say, listen, we can't abide that doctrine because we know Jesus Christ is fully God. He's also fully man. And so as you see that in 2 John, you realize that that's the basis for fellowship that he's talking about. Third John, he comes in and begins to commend Gaius and begins to commend uh, Demetrius and say, look at how wonderful these men are upstanding uh, uh, members of the church. How about how they take care of each other and how the fellowship of Christ is sweet and all these things. But on the opposite end, here's Diotrephes. Here's a guy who loves to sit in the church and loves to be the arbiter of who gets to fellowship with others and who doesn't who gets accepted and who doesn't. Here's the one who sits in a judgment seat and speaks against the apostles with malicious words. Both of those things are open. And talking about fellowship, John says the people that come to you and want to deny the deity of Jesus in 2 John are openly doing so. In 3 John, you've got Diotrephes who's sitting up openly forbidding others who want to receive, receive the apostles out of the church. How is that different than what we've already read here in the book of Jude? Does it seem like these people, Jude says, are openly sitting in the church and promoting ungodly lifestyles, as it were? Note what he said, verse 4. For certain men who have, what does he say? crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They are similar charges that, what, that are what made to uh, 2 John. However, what it seems like is here are people who don't necessarily make their beliefs known. They're kind of creeping in under the radar, we might say, and now it is their... Uh, their uh, promoting lewdness, and they're promoting all sorts of ungodly behaviors in the church. Keywords to note here in the book as we read through them, and you may mark some of these or write them on your sheet there as, as we go through. Uh, the word Lord is uh, six times, used six times in these 25 verses. The word Lord. The word ungodly is used the same amount of times, six times in this, uh, in this epistle. The word Christ is used five times. God is used five times. So if we're talking about the Lord uh, Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ, he's also used five times. Um, Lord Jesus Christ, each one of those words is used five times. That's a total of 15 plus God is 20 here in 25 verses, uh, along with ungodly, which is six times. Another word that is used is the word for keep. The word for keep. Um, your translation may say observe. Your translation may say remain. That's used five times. Five times. The word for to be or is, uh, we might say, four times. 
The word glory is used four times. And the word judgment is used three times. As far as vocabulary words go, when you're reading through an epistle and you come across a word again and again and again and again, note that word, circle that word in your Bible or at least on your uh, study sheet or maybe in the tablet of your mind and so that it is you can come back and say, this is obviously key to what this person is talking about. When Jude uses the word Lord and ungodly and Christ and God and Jesus five or more times, and then talks about keeping or observing or remaining five times, and then is five times, and glory four times, and judgment three times. All of those words are important to the theology that he's trying to get across, the words that he's trying to use to help the church to understand what he's saying. You take all those words, you put them into a summary sentence. We could say this, keep yourself in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, for God will keep the ungodly for judgment. Christians, you have a responsibility to keep yourself in what you know is right in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a responsibility to walk, as John would say, in the light. You have a responsibility to keep yourself in what you know is right. But those people that choose to transgress, as John would say in third, or second John 9 through 11, the people that choose to walk alongside of the light or walk alongside of what we know to be right, he says God is going to keep those people for judgment. And that's essentially the message of Jude. Anybody need me to repeat any of that? I know I threw a whole lot at you in the first 10 minutes, but that's, uh, that's the way we got to go. Big lessons for little books. Yes, ma'am? Okay. Keep yourself in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will keep the ungodly for judgment. <clears throat> keep yourself in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, for God will keep the ungodly for judgment. <coughs> One more time, or are we good? Going once, going twice. One more time, all right. Keep yourself in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, for God will keep the ungodly for judgment. We'll look at the word keep next week. So if you run across it in your daily Bible reading or in your study, uh, mark it or circle it, note the context in which it's used. The word keep or remain or observe, all of those are the same word. And we'll look at those again, Lord willing, next week. If I were to outline a key phrase of the book or a key verse of the book, I would certainly draw a bracket around verse 3. Verse 3. I love it when a writer tells you exactly why it is that he's writing a particular book, for what reason. Because I know that when you talk about a thesis statement, a statement that's summer, uh, um, that is a summary of everything else that he's going to talk about, verse 3 would probably be it. All right, beloved, I was very uh, diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you. The Greek word is parakaleo, calling to one side. The Holy Spirit is called a paraclete in the old King James, a uh, one who calls to the side for aid. Jude says, this is what I did. I wanted to write about the greatness of salvation, but I need to call you to my side to help you understand something about what your responsibility is and are. Uh, it is to contend earnestly for the faith. You may underline that. 
If there's a summary phrase that uh, describes what Jude's talking about, it's going to be contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. All right. Now, lest we get ahead of ourselves, let's read the epistle. Let's read it together, please. I encourage you to open your Bible or uh, your electronic device, and uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's read this together. <clears throat> Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only God, uh, Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he's reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they don't know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, laid autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, Raging waves of the sea, foaming up in their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment and convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they've done and committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment that's defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, 
who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. All right. If we're going to outline this text, what is the purpose for Jude? Why does he write it? You find that in verses 1 to 4. The purpose. What's he going to say? Why is he going to say it? I want you to contend earnestly for the faith. Why? Verse 4. There's men who are among you who are uh, marked out for this destruction, who are turning the grace of our only God, uh, only God into lewdness and deny our uh, Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to stand bold. I want you to be firm with these people. That's the purpose why he's writing. Secondly, verses 5 to 16. What do these men look like? What do these false teachers look like? What do these people that are turning the grace of God into lewdness look like? Here's the description of them, verses 5 to 16. That's the bulk of the text, isn't it? When you look and see the section in verses 1 to 4, here's the purpose. Now, verses 5 to 16, here's the description. What's the defense? What is it God wants us to do in the face of these people? Verses 17 through 23. Here's the defense against these false teachers or these uh, people that are turning the uh, grace of God into lewdness. We might call them just ungodly people. The defense against false teachers, verses 17 to 23. And lastly, verses 24 and 25, Jude finishes up with a message of praise. Uh, it's a doxology, as it were. We're going to exalt God and praise him for all of his wonderful works. He ends with a, uh, a prayer of praise. So the purpose for Jude, verses 1 to 4, the description of the false teachers, verses 5 to 16, the defense that Christians need to make of how they stand fast for the gospel, how it is that they treat these people, verses 17 to 23, and lastly, a doxology of Jude, a thankfulness, a thankful praise. What do you notice about this epistle? What do you notice about, well, let's zero in here. The description of false teachers there in verses 5 to 23, what do you notice about them? Excuse me, 5 to 16, rather. What struck you as we read through these things about the way that Jude characterizes these people or the words that he uses to, to talk about them? All right, wolves in sheep's clothing, Cynthia says. I would agree with that. What else? Yes, Stan. All right. Um, when you look at the angels and how he uses them as a comparison there in verses uh, verse six and seven or verse six, rather, and talking about the angels who have stood in the very presence of God and chose not to remain there, you know, looking at that and we're not going to chase that rabbit right now, Stan, but uh, maybe it's sometime in the future. But uh, yes, you know, is there free will in heaven? It seems to be. Um, and looking at these people that are these uh, beings that have their um, you know, have the choice not to follow God whenever it is that he speaks. All right, what else? All right, uh, Debbie says they're very self-serving. 
you find again and again and again that what they're doing is appealing to self. You may jot that down just for a moment because we're going to come back to that theme, but that's very good. Um, Morris says they're clouds without water. What does that mean? What's uh, the, son, the Proverbs writer, and I'm, I'm speaking, you'll forgive me, you can look it up later. Um, like a wind in the clouds without rain, so is a man who falsely boasts of giving. Something like that, Alan. Uh, <laughs> those guys speaking out of the end. All right. Um, yes, when you have a big th thunderstorm come through and lots and lots of clouds and the sky gets really, really dark, and you think, oh, man, it's about to dump a whole lot of rain that we so badly need. And then it just kind of moves on without dropping a, a little bit. You know, you've, here's these people that maybe make loud boasts and uh, and you think, okay, they're so full of potential. They're so full of potential, but they've got... They don't do anything in order to uh, to edify or build up um, as they ought to within Jesus Christ. What else? Yes, ma'am. Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry, Janice. Yes. Janice, yes. Yes. That's the thing that struck me, especially when you're looking at verses 5 to 16. He's going to give you example after example after example, as Janice says, of these evil men who, note, have been in the presence of God or who have been on God's side, so to speak, but then decided not to remain there. Note again the examples that he uses, verse 5. What's the example? Children of Israel, God delivered them from Egypt. God extended to them this covenant relationship in Exodus 19 and 20. The people accepted, but later on they didn't remain with God. Instead, in Numbers 13 and 14, what did they do? We don't want to stay with God. We want to go back to Egypt. And God said, your carcasses are going to fall in the wilderness. They were in God's presence. They were in a special relationship with God, and they didn't remain there. Instead, what happened? They perished. What's the next example? Verse 6. Stan's already brought it up. Here's these angels that have been in the presence of God who have seen the very face of God. And they did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode and God's judged them. What about verse 7? What's the example? Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them in a similar manner to these. These people were given over to sexual immorality. These people were given over to fornication. A lot of people say you can't judge Sodom and Gomorrah based upon um, their immorality. And this is usually trying to advance a particular agenda by, um, uh, by the LBGDQ. They, they look at the Bible and say, well, that wasn't the primary sin of why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Jude says that had a lot to do with it. And God looking at it and saying, here's these people who have given themselves over and gone after strange flesh are set forth as, what does he say? What does your Bible say? Verse 7. They're set forth as an example. Who are they an example for? They're an example for us. Suffering the, vengeance, uh, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. He goes back and he talks about these people. Likewise. All right, in a similar fashion, again, circle the ungodly men back up in verse 4. All right, certain men, circle that, who are uh, crept in unnoticed, who long ago marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men. What are they doing? Turning the grace of God into lewdness. Somebody have an alternate translation of lewdness? 
Everybody's version say lewdness? Sensuality, that's a good word. 63 different synonyms in the uh, Bible used for this word. Uh, Turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only God, Lord Jesus Christ. All right, these ungodly men, verse 4. We're going to go back and talk about them, verse 8. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, speak evil of dignitaries. All right, what's the next example he gives? Verse 9. Okay, so here's the example of Michael arguing with the devil over the body of Moses. Okay, and Michael the archangel is not bringing a reviling accusation against the devil. He's not pointing out all these devil's flaws, but just simply says that the Lord rebuke you. What characteristic of these ungodly men is he dealing with back in verse 8? rejecting authority. They're not being afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Okay? Here's somebody who on the law of their lips has no problem deriding authority and authority figures that they have no problem with, that they disagree with. If I had it to do, this is the way that I would do it. Oh, don't you know that eldership doesn't have the sense God gave a goose. And they want to try and speak evil of these men as if there are no consequences. And Jude is saying, look at this example here in verse 9. You've got Michael, an archangel, seemingly a ruler over angels, a high position for this person, for this being rather. And Michael is not going to speak evil even of the devil, but he's going to say, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord's going to take care of whatever it is that you're saying about this subject. Verse 10, he's going to come back to the theme. But these, who's these? You can just say the verse 4 people. But these, who's the these? Say with me. The ungodly men, the verse 4 people. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, and these things, they're caught themselves or corrupt themselves. Woe to them. Here's a rapid fire example. What three examples does he give? Verse 11. All right, they have gone in the way of Cain. Stop. What did Cain do? Okay, he killed Abel. Why did he kill Abel? Jealousy. What else? He wasn't accepted by God. And instead, the sin that he should have ruled over, as God said, sin is creeping at the door, is desires for you, but if you should rule over it, Instead, he let his lust for blood overcome his understanding of what God wanted of him. Jealousy, anger, vengeance, he's going to entertain those things. He's going to bring his life about in those things as opposed to ruling over those things. Okay, there's Cain. What else? What's the second example? Abel, uh, sorry, Balaam, right? have run greedily in the era of Balaam. Stop. Who is Balaam? Uh, you want to write a cross-reference. Numbers 22, 23, and 24. God takes this break from telling about the children of Israel and goes on the opposite side of the coin and begins to look at what the other nations were doing. Those Moabites, 
that were concerned that the Israelites were going to pass through their lands, and they called a man who was called a prophet of God by the name of Balaam. And they said, Balaam, we're going to give you lots and lots and lots of money if it is that you'll come and curse these Israelites for us in the name of the Lord. And Balaam first refused. He said, I can't do that. He said, whatever the Lord tells me, that's what i got to speak. And then later on, you know that Balaam uh, got on his donkey and went his way, and the donkey ended up smashing his foot up against the wall because he could see something that Balaam couldn't see. Right? What was Balaam's motivation that Jude gives? What's his motivation? He wanted the money. Show me the money. I want to see it, and I want to let that be my motivation. How do these ungodly men fit with that? Look back up at verse 4. They're turning the grace of God into sensuality, into lewdness, into selfishness, as Debbie would bring up for us. When it's all about selfishness, it's all about, well, it's all about what appeals to me. What's the third example he gives? The perished in the rebellion of Korah. Stop. Who was Korah? Go back to Numbers 16. You're going to find out that Korah was a man who, with many others, challenged the authority of Moses and wanted to take the position of leadership, which God had rightfully said, Moses and Aaron are my guys. And Korah thought, we can do this. Moses, you're taking too much on yourself. Moses, I think that I could be a leader as well. How does that apply to these ungodly men? Verse 8, they did not keep their proper domain. There are some people that, well, are simply not qualified to be leaders, and there are certain people that God has said, these are my leaders. Uh, when we appoint people like elders, it's not just us appointing those men. The Bible says in Acts 20 that the Holy Spirit appoints those men when they meet the qualifications. And so it is that when you have somebody that's not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries and people that desire so much to be in a leadership position that they're challenging authority and talking bad about people, they're not keeping, in verse 8, the proper domain, like uh, what he mentions back in verse 6. Oh, sorry, verse 8, Alan mentioned. Uh, these reamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries. Three Old Testament examples. Just like Cain didn't rule over his sin, but allowed that to affect his life. That's like these people. Just like Balaam wanted the greed and wanted the money more than he wanted the praise of God. That's like these people. Just like uh, uh, Korah didn't want to just remain to be a servant, but rather wanted to be in a leadership position. That's like these people. You don't get a very, very good picture of these folks, do you? But what you also get is, folks, a picture of people who were obviously at one time in a right relationship with God, but have forfeited that right because what they're trying to do is pursue their own selfish and sinful lusts at the expense of what God has said. And that's one of the lessons is, is that Jude says, here's the reserved judgment for these people. What's our key phrase that we said? Christians, you keep yourselves in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is going to keep those ungodly people who are turning his grace into lewdness for judgment. 
that's a huge lesson. And that's a big lesson from this little book to understand. And if we can get that and understand what he's saying, then it says that we're going to um, have a better, uh, put our uh, thumbprint on the pulse of what Jude is saying. Note the descriptive language down in the next four or five verses. Verse 12, they are spots in your love feasts. Stop, what's a love feast? Spots in your love feast. Okay, could be a metaphor for Lord's Supper. Could be a metaphor for all of us getting together and sitting down in Christian fellowship and having a meal together. We might call it a potluck. Here's an opportunity where we can gather together in fellowship, celebrating the spiritual relationship. And Jude says these people are spots on that. It's not the pure, unblemished bride of Christ as that's the way Christ wants it. Does that mean that I'm sinless and you're sinless? The answer is no. But as we humble ourselves and as we continue to look at ourselves and say, I want the cleansing blood of Jesus to continue uh, washing me as I walk from day to day, that's what helps continue to keep the church pure and holy. I'm a sinner. I'm in need of God's grace. And as I repent, as I continually come back in humility again and again and again, God continues to forgive me. God looks at me and he doesn't see a sinner condemned. He says, somebody who's covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. That is, I'm a perfect 10. Certainly not by looks, but you understand. By spiritual standards, God says, you're righteous. That's the purity of the holiness of the church. However, here's somebody who is not behaving like they ought to. Here's somebody, verse 4, who is ungodly, who's turning the grace of God into lewdness. It's almost like you take a white tablecloth and you take a, a red ink blotter and you blot a, 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 some red ink right there in the middle of it, what is you going to notice? Is it going to be the white tablecloth or are you going to say there's a spot right there in the middle of that? God says you got to watch out for these people because they're spots. When you get together in this spiritual relationship, they're defiling what should be pure and holy and what should be completely clean. There's spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, there are clouds without water carried about by the winds, laid autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. There are raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom has reserved the blackness of darkness forever. I don't even begin to pretend to understand all these metaphors, but I can understand that these people, these are not good things. The four different, I think, uh, things that he mentioned, their spots in the love feast, or rather, uh, verse 12, their clouds without wind, their late autumn trees without fruit. Verse 13, they're raging waves of the sea. They're wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. There's not anything I want to be, you. Not anything that I want to be described as, you. All of these are descriptions of verse 4 people, the ungodly who are turning the grace of our God into lewdness and denying the only Lord uh, God and our only Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> verse 14 is curious, verse 14 15. A quotation by a person by the name of Enoch the seventh from Adam. It could be that we're talking about the Old Testament character that Enoch walked with God. That's always been the traditional understanding. However, also what you understand is that there were a number of um, uh, apocrypha writings, uh, sorry, um, uh, some things that are pseudepigrapha, that is uh, 
letters that were written that were um, based upon spiritual things. And uh, in the first and second century, you find a person by the name of Enoch who is called as a pen name, the seventh from Adam. Um, it could be that he mentioned something like this in his, uh, in his writings. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on, uh, and convict all those who are ungodly among them for the ungodly deeds which they've committed in an ungodly way and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. When you look and find, uh, you know, and see that this, well, I mean, from that perspective, if this is a person that is a contemporary, a writer that's writing in, uh, with a pen name, Enoch the Seventh from Adam, it would put it in the realm of maybe secular literature. But didn't Paul in Acts chapter 17 bring over what the poet said about God, that we are also his offspring? Could be that Enoch spoke the spiritual truth, and certainly Jude confirms that, but it uh, it doesn't follow that the rest of everything else he wrote was was right. Um, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. Verse 15, note, to execute judgment on all, to convict all those who are, circle it, ungodly. Among them of all their, circle it, ungodly deeds, which they've committed in an, circle it, ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which, circle it, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Who are we talking about in context? What's that? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. The verse four people, those ungodly men. That's five times that the word ungodly has been used, four times of it right there in verse 15. And what is Enoch, the seventh from Adam, what does Jude confirm that's going to happen to these people? Excuse me? Verse 14. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment. God is going to keep the ungodly for judgment. These people that are grumblers, complainers, I'm sure that doesn't describe anybody here, right? Uh, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. You like to have people tell you something nice about yourself? You like to have somebody tell you, you know, what a, what a great thing you're doing or what a great spiritual person you're doing or uh, just giving you compliments? But they're not really, as it were, sincere. They're schmoozing. They're wanting to say those things, not because they're true, but because, hey, I'm going to look better in your eyes if I tell you those things. Certainly nobody's ever done that or had somebody else do, uh, do that to them. Um, verse 17, here's the contrast. But you, for the first time since, verse 3, contend earnestly for the faith, He's going to give concrete examples, concrete things that you can do in order to, well, contend earnestly for the faith back in verse 3. But you, beloved, number one, what does he say? Remember the words which are spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What words, especially? We could say all the words, that's true, but in context, what words does he want? Okay, the words of the apostles, specifically, what words in context? Yes, verse 18, how they told you there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own, hey, here we are again, time number six, ungodly, circle it, walking according to their own ungodly lusts. 
I jump back up to verse 4. I see that these ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I don't think we can leave this example here without saying this. When we reject truth, when we reject the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we're going to do is we're going to turn the gospel into something that's sensual, that's lewdness. If I reject the Bible and I reject the plain Bible teaching about what the Lord says that the church ought to be, about what my Christian responsibilities are, about how God wants me to live my life in godliness, if I reject any part of that, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ into something that's sensual, something that's self-appealing. Now think about that just for a moment. When Christianity becomes about the meal ticket, I know those people down there at the church, especially the members of the Church of Christ, are going to be compassionate and kind-hearted. So all I have to do is just show up off the street and knock on the door and say, hey, I need some help with this. I'm a religious person. I need some help with this because, and then they'll have no qualms about going down the road to try and get help for. Again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not denying that there are legitimate needs out there. But I'm also understanding that there are people that will take advantage of religious people just because they know that there's a character and quality about them in order to try and help people. But let's narrow it down just a little bit more. When it is that we become to approach things like the worship of the New Testament church. I understand that two of our three Bible classes last quarter talked about worship. What happens whenever I say, I see what God says about the five sacred acts of worship that he wants, that he's asked for, that he's told us these things are what you bring into my presence every time it is that you assemble, especially for the Sunday assemble, Acts 20, verse 7. And you bring those things in and people begin to look at this and say, Okay, but that's boring. But that's not entertaining. All of a sudden, I've taken what God has said, and I've said what? Let me set that aside. And now, what am I going to insert in, in its place? Self. And how does that look? What's going to appeal to me as a worshiper? What do I like? Or what do I think needs to be there in the place of what I've already rejected? And the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> you've opened the floodgates for whatever. It used to be that we could drive on uh, Highway 35 when we were driving from San Marcos up to, uh, up to Waco to get catch 31 over there, uh, heading my mom's house. And when you get to Waco, I think, or just south of Waco, maybe Temple, there was a building over there on the right-hand side of the road as you're traveling north on 35 that uh, had a house of worship, so to speak, and it had as a banner on the side, huge banner, you couldn't miss it, home of the 30-minute worship. Again, there's nothing wrong with 30-minute worship. However, what happens is, is that they're using that as a hook to say, here is a worship that's not going to inconvenience you in the least. Here's a worship that's going to be able to fit in your busy schedule. So it is that you can get about your Sunday and go about uh, doing all the other things that you really want to do. When you look and you see somebody that appeals to something like that, isn't that sensuality? Isn't that appealing to something that 
is really going to make me feel good and give me some uh, some thought about how it is that I ought to, well, what I want. When you find people that will reject the plain New Testament teaching about things like acapella singing, well, the question is, what are we going to insert in, in its place? Now, the worship of the Lord's church is designed to be something that can be done no matter where you are. But the way that you look at a lot of denominations today, it's you're going to find that they have made such a production out of the worship service that it's almost like we can't carry on if it is that we don't have all of these things in place, falling in place again and again and again. And if it's not just almost like a band concert or a rock concert, well, that's not worship. I can't worship unless it is that the music makes me feel good. I can't worship unless it is that, uh, that we get out on time. I can't worship unless it is that me, 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 me. That's what happens when it is that we den deny those things. Again, as far as an application goes, here are people that are wanting to serve their own sensual lust when it comes to things about the church. Is worship off limits with regard to that? Is mocking and deriding and beating down the eldership off limits with that? Well, what if we want to say that we ought to dissolve the eldership and just have a single pastor system? That seems like that's a really good idea. Instead of having to go through a plurality of elders like God has said, wouldn't it be better if we just took all of our desires and our wants and wills and wishes to one man and had him make the final decision? That's the way a lot of people behave and operate. What we're talking about, brothers and sisters, is an idea of if I deny what God has said, what I'm going to put in its place are things that appeal to me. If you deny what God said, what you're going to do is you're going to put in place things that appeal to you. And when you have that, you're going to find the characteristics of exactly what he's saying here in the book of Jude. Once again, verse 16. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their what? <clears throat> Own lusts. Doesn't that describe exactly what we've been talking about? And so when Jude talks about this, here's the question. Why do we need to contend earnestly for the faith when we're faced with people like these? So you don't have the desire, you don't, so that you have the strength not to succumb to what they're teaching and saying. I would agree with that. As far as personally goes, you can, you can do some great damage to somebody's faith based upon what you say and how you say it and who you say it about. But you can allow somebody to do great damage to your faith based upon who you let say those things to you. You sit around people that are all about just deriding and mocking and, and tearing down the work of the church. And before too long, you've got in your mind, ugh, ugh, this worship service, ugh, these people, ugh, that eldership, ugh, that preacher. All of those things because you've spent time nurturing and nourishing those thoughts and nourishing that, that attitude. When Jude says, you stand up for what's right. Now, wait a minute. 
I know that eldership is trying to lead us in the way that God wants us to go. Now, wait a minute. That preacher brings out book, chapter, and verse every time he's up there. Now, wait a minute. That worship service is really encouraging whenever it is that you focus in on the words and focus in on what's going. It's really something that glorifies God. And I don't need to tolerate that kind of talk. Many a church has been destroyed based upon people that haven't stood up and contended earnestly for the faith when they have Christians, Christians who are not what they ought to be, talking about things that they ought not talk about. Yes, sir, Ken. And preserved in Christ Jesus. That's exactly right. We have the contrast to those who are the called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. This epistle is to you. And verse 3 is not necessarily talking about in a Christian evidences context like we're talking about on Wednesday nights. But rather instead, when you have Christians that come to you and that are not what they ought to be and begin to talk about things that they ought not talk about and begin to... Well, try and persuade you in an ungodly lifestyle and say it's okay. That's the time you need to stand up and say, wait a minute, what does Jesus want me to do? Because we're set apart. If we fail and lose the holiness, the set-apartness, the sanctity of the Lord's church and move that over into lewdness, verse 4, we've lost everything. We've lost influence. We've lost integrity, but more than that, we've lost a good relationship with God. Message to Jude, we'll spend more time looking at that next week. Thank you all so much for your attention and for your participation this morning.